This weekend is another one of those big weekends for the NCAA basketball tournament. Who's watching the tournament? Raise your hand. All right. Who's not watching? Raise your hand. Who has no idea what it is? Raise your hand. All right. So there's all kind of folks in here. But one of the stories, it's, it's always interesting. Uh, the, you know, sport, I love sports anyway. But one of the stories that always comes out in, at this time of the year are the upsets or the big games, this, that, and the other. And uh, over the weekend, uh, I didn't see the games because I was tied up with uh, several different things. But the University of Virginia, one of our ACC members, became the first ever number one seed in the tournament to lose to a number 16 seed. So that basically means the team that was ranked number 64 beat the team that was ranked number one. Never happened before, and, uh, and it was a big upset. And uh, it was history, and it was notable, and it was on uh, TV all throughout the weekend that a number 16 had finally beaten a number one. Now, that's not why I'm, I'm telling you this. I want to point out the fact that God uses all circumstances for his glory. I'm going to say that again because I know you want to say amen to that. God uses all circumstances for his glory, and this is one of those. Now, not long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, the University of Virginia won the ACC uh, championship, so they were the champions of our league. Tony Bennett, the coach there, has been coached for a few years, has done an outstanding job. And uh, Tony Bennett, uh, in, in the rise to being ACC champion, as well as now having the distinction of being the first ever number one to get beaten by number 16, both of those, the high of high and the low of lows, in both of those instances, the devout Christian faith of Coach Tony Bennett has shined through and has been an opportunity for him to reflect his faith, to recognize that sometimes God raises us up to the top of the mountain so that we can give glory to him. Amen? And sometimes he humiliates us or allows us to be humiliated and even in that time of humiliation uses our testimony for his glory. And in both of those circumstances, Tony Bennett, the coach of University of Virginia basketball, has been very gracious and uh, been outspoken in his Christian faith. In the loss, the historic loss, he was called in several places, I saw it in, in, uh, in several highlights, a class act and representative. And uh, in uh, the, a, a periodical called the dailyprogress.com, uh, they, they did an expose about his faith and said, Tony Bennett's faith shapes everything about him. And it says, the majority of players on the team pray. And that has a lot to do with Coach Tony Bennett. And so I just, I'm just reminded of how the importance of prayer, the importance of our faith, the importance of living our faith in the highest of highs and lowest of lows, knowing God uses all circumstances for his glory. Amen? Now, I can, uh, I can remember back when I was a child, a long time ago, obviously. Uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> And if I was 30 years older, I would be like an Al's category. Anyway, that's another story. But, <laughs> but I, <can't, laughs> I love you, Al. I love you. I love you. I love you. I was just kidding, Miss Huffman. I didn't mean to talk about Al that way. But I can't. I can't. <laughs> she said, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I can remember when I was a child, those times of spending the night at my grandparents' house. See if you remember those days, you spend the night with your grandparents. And I can remember uh, being brought up in a home that was not a Christian home. My grandparents were Christians, and my grandfather was one of the, the greatest Christian men I ever knew. And I can remember as a child going to spend the night with granddaddy and grandmama. And uh, at bedtime, I remember my grandfather saying prayers with me. I had no clue what that was about, but we'd say prayers. And so, so we would kneel down beside the bed, 
And, uh, and, and he would say a brief prayer out loud. And then he would pray silently, and I would stay right there beside of him. And, and here's, when you're a young child, uh, you know, two minutes seems like an eternity if you don't really want to be there. So I, I can remember being on my knees and, 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 and being there beside my grandfather, and he's praying silently. I don't know what he's saying, what he's doing, what's going on. And so I'm just saying, I'm, I'm thinking, how long is this going to last? <laughs> what is he saying to God? How long is this going to last? Is he breathing? What if he dies while he's praying and I'm stuck here beside of him? If I sneak out, will he notice? If he notices, will I get in trouble? How long is he going to be doing this? The reality is, most people don't pray often, and when they pray, they don't pray for very long. Today, we're going to talk about prayer. Over time, there have been some very notable men and women in history who were known as great prayers, prayer warriors, any number of different ways you could say it. And I want to share a few of those folks with you that I've been exposed to that have served as role models for me over time in prayer. One of these, these ladies you may have heard of, her name, she was known as Miss Bertha Smith. Anybody remember Miss Bertha Smith? She was a, several of you do, she was a Southern Baptist missionary to China after the time of Lottie Moon. She spent 30 years as one of our Southern Baptist missionaries there in China, and she was there for what came to be known as the uh, Shantung Revival. Al, you remember the Shantung Revival, no doubt? Okay. <laughs> but she was there, and uh, at the age of 70, she retired and came back to Cowpens, South Carolina, and lived in the house that her father had built and began a prayer ministry, what became a prayer ministry. She would lead prayer retreats. And, and during these retreats, it is said that she would spend the first two or three days of the retreat focusing on the topic of personal sin and getting right with God. And she called people to do this, to examine your heart and confess every known sin to God. If you sin against the Lord, then confess it to the Lord, she said. And if you sin against another person, then go to that person and make it right. And then pray that the Lord will fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then she says this, only then will you be on praying ground. That's some strong words, isn't it? And uh, I'm reminded of the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, but the time and energy that it takes to prioritize prayer in our lives. Andrew Murray, in the book Power in Prayer, speaks of the importance of faith or belief as we pray. R.A. Torrey, a great pastor of days gone by, in his book How to Pray, says that it's important that we pray and understand what it means to pray in the name of Christ. It's important that we pray in that name. Gregory Frizzell, in his book How to Develop a Powerful Prayer Life, sp uh, speaks about uh, learning to pray. And he says you won't learn to pray by merely reading about prayer, you learn to pray by praying as you make time, as you prioritize the time to spend that time with God. Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, speaks about prayer being the power of God that we must connect to in our spiritual lives. The great Chinese Christian, Watchman Nee, in a book he wrote called The Prayer Ministry of the Church, spoke, spoke about prayer giving a spiritual insight into our lives as we spend time 
with the Lord. And then one of my favorite prayer resources, the Valley of Vision, a collection of written prayers by Puritans back in the 1600s. One of those prayers in the book called Purification says this, and this is a part of a prayer. Lord, give me grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, peaceable. To live for you and not for self. To copy your words, acts, spirit. To be transformed into your likeness. To be consecrated wholly to you. Now listen to this. To live entirely to your glory. I want you to look at that last line. Because this, this, this line of this prayer that was written in the 1600s has gripped me. And it's, I've been dwelling on that. What does it mean to pray this way? What does it mean that that be my heart's desire? What does it mean if, if, if we uh, as a congregation and, and us individually embraced the goal to pray to God and to say, Lord, help me to live entirely for your glory, not just on Sundays, not just in my religious life, but in every area of my life, in my job, in my home in my marriage, in my parenting, in my grandparenting, in my, in my relationship with my friends, to live entirely for the glory of God, in my, in my, in my finances, in my health issues, in, in, in everything, to live entirely to the glory of God. Imagine the difference that could make. Chris Schofield, who works at our Baptist State Convention in North Carolina and heads our office of prayer, in the prayer guide that we used last fall, Return to Me, Chris Schofield says this, Will God's people listen to his message? And will God's people respond appropriately by seeking him with all their hearts? Only time will tell. Well, today is the third message in the series I'm preaching about discovering Jesus. The first week we looked at the identity of Jesus, who he is. Last week we looked at the mission of Jesus, why he came into the world. Today, we're going to look at the prayers of Jesus because to discover who Jesus is, is to discover prayer and the priority of prayer in his life and the model of prayer that he set for us. And while we may know some, some tidbits about prayer in the life of Jesus, I, I think it's important that we look at, at, at the importance of prayer throughout his life and his ministry and his call to us that we be people of prayer. Jesus taught us to pray. He set the example to pray. And, uh, uh, and, and prayer, if we have to define it, I would say is this. Prayer is communion, communication, and relationship with God. Ultimately, prayer boils down to a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. If we have that faith, and if we have that relationship, we pray. We pray. We're drawn to prayer. And in those times when we feel so pulled apart from God or so busy in the world, those are times that ought to pull us back on our knees to pray. And so we can, we can learn the most about prayer, I believe, by looking at the prayer life of Jesus. What can his prayer life teach us in this day? Because he is our model, he is our example, and he is our standard. And I would say this. You know, we looked at the identity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God. And that he came to earth, God in human form, the eternal son of God. And if we determine by the scriptures, which we will in a moment, that Jesus as God on earth prioritized, made time, and spent large quantities of time and many opportunities of time praying. 
If it was that important for the Son of God on earth, how much more important is it for me to pray? How much more important is it for us as believers to pray? And how shameful it is based on surveys and based on my own experience and based on, on dealing with people, how shameful it is that we spend so little time on our faces before God in prayer. I want you to, to notice some New Testament references to Jesus praying. And, and let me just say this. I'm not here to put a guilt trip on you for not praying as you feel like you should. Amen? <laughs> I'm not here to put a guilt trip on you for any lack of praying that you may feel in your life. Because it has been very humbling for me even this week to, to study this passage again. And to be reminded again of my need, my desperate need to pray. And my shortcomings in this area. So if you're feeling guilty even now, he's just going to fuss at us about not praying. Just know he's fussing at himself too because it is just, just a, a monumental thing as we look at prayer and at Jesus and the model and example he, sees, he sets for us. Jesus prayed in times of acknowledging who God is. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed regularly and withdrew from the crowds. Even in the midst of busy seasons of ministry, Jesus turned and left and went to spend time in prayer. He prayed after healing people in the evening in Mark chapter 1. He prayed before walking on the water. He prayed all night before choosing the twelve disciples. He prayed before Peter's confession of him as the Christ. He prayed before teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. He prayed at that great moment of the transfiguration where he physically changed forms before his disciples uh, in their presence as the Son of God. He prayed uh, for Peter and for his faith to be strengthened. He prayed when he was facing the cross in John chapter 12. He prayed, Father, glorify your name in what I'm about to go through. He prayed on the night of his betrayal and his arrest. John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prayed for himself as he faced the cross. He prayed for his disciples and all that was coming to them. He prayed for those that would believe on him down through the ages, including us today. John 17 records that great prayer of Jesus. There are three times Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26 where it's recorded. All three times it records the same words that Jesus prayed, and they're these. You've heard them before. He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, not as, not, let it be as you, not I, would have it. Not your will, but my, not my will, but your will be done. Three times Jesus prayed that. We know that from the cross, there are three recorded prayers of Jesus as he suffered in agony. One of them is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then he prayed this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the psalm from the Old Testament. And then he prayed just before he died, Father, into your hands I commend, commit my spirit. Jesus was a man of prayer. In the highlights of his life and ministry in the most agonizing times of his life and ministry and, uh, and he demonstrates that for us 
Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus saying the blessing. Before the, he did the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, he prayed. We see Jesus praying at the Last Supper. And then even after his resurrection, as he met with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, he prayed and offered the blessing at that time. And just before he was raised up into heaven in Luke 24, he blessed his disciples and prayed over them. Jesus prayed. Now, perhaps the best-known example of the prayers of Jesus we find in Matthew chapter 6. And I'll ask you to turn there with me this morning. Matthew chapter 6, what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And uh, in, in Luke, where the same story is recorded, uh, the disciples had seen Jesus pray. They had listened to Jesus pray. And in Luke 11, 1, they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. No doubt they had heard other people praying. No doubt they had prayed themselves. But there was something about the prayers of Jesus. No surprise. There's something about the prayers of Jesus where they heard him and they saw him and they said to him, Lord, teach us. Help us to know how to pray in the way that you pray. Let's stand together if we can this morning. I want to read for you from Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse number 9. And Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, as we study your word and study the prayers of Jesus, may we be encouraged to be men and women of prayer. May we be encouraged to spend time communing with our Heavenly Father. Yes, by reading your word. Yes, by coming and attending and participating in church. Yes, by the singing of songs. But also, all the more, through our prayers. Teach us to pray by praying. Motivate us to pray through the circumstances of our life and the longing of our heart. Use our prayers to build our faith and use our faith to build your kingdom through us as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So, in the same way that Jesus gave a prayer... In the same way that Jesus gave a prayer for the disciples uh, to learn how to pray, he models the same for us. And just as the disciples learned about the prayer of Christ through his prayer here, we learn about prayer as well. So let's look at three sections of this model prayer that we might better understand how to pray. Now, for some of us who have memorized the Lord's Prayer, have utilized the Lord's Prayer, have studied the Lord's Prayer, have taught the Lord's Prayer, uh, there's, a lot of, of, there's a lot here of, of encouragement and reminders, uh, but even for those of us who may not have known or read this passage or, or, or studied this passage, there's a lot we can learn from the very simple prayer that Jesus offered. First of all, I want, to, I want us to note the first section is an acknowledgement of God. As we pray... It's important to recognize who it is that we're praying for and just who God is. Notice uh, there at, at the beginning where he says, Our Father 
in heaven. Two things important here. The first is the recognition of God as Father. While it is impossible for us to have any idea who God is, God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the role of Father. All of us know this role, this role of Father. For some, it might be through having a wonderful father figure and a wonderful father experience. For others, it may be for having a terrible father experience or an absent father. But one way or the other, we all have some, some concept of father. And that's why it's so important for us men to always recognize the importance of our role when we serve as father, that we are reflecting the role of God to our families, to our wives, and to our children. The first image that boys and girls have of God is often the image of their father in their home. And that's by God's design. So God says, first of all, he reveals himself as father. But then notice this, our father in heaven. That's a reminder that, that God is not an earthly father. He's a heavenly father. That he is in heaven, which means that the, 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 father, the, the God father or the father who is God uh, to us is the same God who is the creator of all that there is the sustainer of the universe, and the savior of the soul. That's who God is. And throughout the Bible, we see God portrayed over and over again as a heavenly father. For example, in, in Psalm 103, in verse number 13, it says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. And that word fear, just to make sure we understand, that word fear is not simply to stand and be afraid of, but that word fear relates to being in reverence of, to be in awe of, to be in worship of. So for those who know God and reverence Him and worship Him, He is a, is a father having compassion on His children. And notice the second section of this prayer we find in verses 10 to 13, and that is specific requests of God. And here in the Lord's Prayer, there are six specific requests made of God that we see here. Uh, the first three re reflect and relate to God's reign and God's rule. Who God is. It's so important as we pray that we recognize who it is that we're praying to. The first request is that the holiness of God would shine. The holiness of God would shine out into the world. Al mentioned earlier how the curtain in the Holy of Holies would, would, would contain the glory and the presence of God. But with the coming of Jesus, the, the curtain was, was ripped in two from top to bottom. And the glory of God was released um, by His plan to, to be not only in one place at one time in the Holy of Holies, but to be in our hearts and in our lives as we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Jesus says, as you pray, pray like this, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed is another way of saying holy. And to be holy means to be set apart. And to be set apart has two connotations in the scripture. On the one hand, it means to be set apart from common everyday things of the world, even the sinful things. We're set apart from the sinful things in the world. That's the, where the name of God is. And then set apart to the purposes and the glory of God. The glory of God is who God is. And it's a prayer here that his holiness and his glory would shine through his name. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love hearing the names of God. And, and, and God has chosen to reveal himself not only in the role of father, but also in the giving of various names at various times and circumstances that we might better know him. In the, in the study that no doubt some of you have completed in the past, experiencing God, 
written by Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby has gone through the Bible and written down all the references, the different references that reveal who God is by the use of his names. I want to share just a few of them. I counted 146 on his list. I'm not going to read that many, although it's an awesome thing to look up even online. But here is how God is referred to by his names throughout the scripture. He's called a faithful God, a forgiving God, a fortress of salvation, a glorious crown, a jealous and avenging God, a master in heaven, a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge for the poor, a sanctuary, a shade from the heat, a shelter from the storm, a source of strength, a stronghold in times of trouble, an ever-present help in trouble. Can I get an amen to that? And you won't hurt my feelings if you amen any of these. So he's also known in the scriptures as God, as God Almighty, God and Father of Jesus Christ, God Most High, God my Maker, God my Rock, God my Savior, God my Stronghold, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all comfort, God of all mankind, God of glory, God of gods, God of grace, God of peace. God of retribution, God of the living, God of the spirits, God of truth, God our Father, God our strength, God over all the kingdoms, God the Father, God who avenges me, God who relents from sending calamity, the great and awesome God, great and powerful God, great, mighty, awesome God. Can I get an amen this morning? This is who God is that we pray to. And when Jesus says we pray hallowed or holy, set apart from the things of the earth and set apart for the purposes of God, this is who God is. He is Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty. Lord is peace, Lord most high. Lord my banner, Lord my rock. Lord of all the earth, Lord of kings, Lord our God, Lord our maker. Lord who heals you. Lord who is there, Lord who makes you holy, Lord who strikes the blow, Lord will provide. Do you know who God is? This is who God is. And as we pray to him, his name is set apart from the things of the earth for the things of God. He is very personal to us. He's called in the scripture, my advocate, my comforter in sorrow, my confidence, my helper, my hiding place, my hope, my light, my might, my rock. My refuge in times of trouble, my song, my strong deliverer, my support. This is who God is. And so as we pray, our Heavenly Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're praying to the God who is all these things and so much more. Amen? And that helps us understanding who we pray to, understanding why we pray, and that what we pray is in accordance with His will. So the first request is that the holiness of God would shine. Secondly, that the rule of God would prevail. That his rule would prevail over all things. I don't know about you, but I look out across the world today, and I see things are not going according to God's purpose and God's plan. I see sin over here and wars over there and persecution over here and health crises over here and families falling apart over here and people's lives falling apart and, and, and difficulties of all kinds. This is not God's purpose and plan and will. So the second request is that the rule of God would prevail because Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. And it's a reminder, first of all, that God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. 
And we're reminded that the kingdom, the prayer is that God's kingdom to come and be established here and for God's kingdom to advance in the world, for God's kingdom to advance in the believer's life, which is you and I, if we follow Christ, and for God's kingdom to be advanced in and through the church. Your kingdom come. The result of God's kingdom coming is that men and women and boys and girls come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we should never Get tired of clapping and applauding when a young man comes and presents himself because he's trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We should never get tired of clapping when I report that in our worship service last Sunday, a young lady came to know Christ. Or that in Metamorphosis this weekend, another young lady came to know Christ. We should never get tired of applauding because that is, that is an example and it is a testimony to God's kingdom reigning and coming and ruling on the earth here and now. That people would know Christ and live for Christ and share the message of the gospel wherever we possibly can. You may not have the pulpit in a church on a Sunday morning, but you've got the pulpit of a relationship with a friend or a family member or a co-worker. We all have an avenue to share the message somehow in some way. That God's rule would prevail. But also thirdly, that the power of God would be displayed. Not just that His rule would prevail, but that His power be displayed. It says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's think about that for a second. What we do know is that right now in heaven, God's rule, God's will, God's power is displayed. His will is done in heaven right now perfectly. Amen? It's going to be exciting. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be any of this sin stuff rolling around and pulling people down and sidetracking people and... And, and, and tying people up, that's going to be gone. We will be perfectly living in the rule and the will of God in heaven right now. That's happening. What we also know is that in the future when Jesus comes back, it's all going to be set right and that God's rule will be given perfectly on earth and that we will live in that environment in, in an unbelievable way and we'll live with God forever and ever and ever when we know Christ as Savior. But in the meantime, we're in between what's happening in heaven and in between what's going to be happening on earth. In the meantime, uh, we, we, we live for Him and we pray that God's will would be increasingly experienced on this earth with people coming to know Christ and living for Christ and living for His glory as the, as the, the person that wrote the prayer uh, in the 1600s prayed that, that my life might be entirely lived for your glory. That's a picture of God's kingdom coming. So, so when we pray like this, we're reminded that God is holy. He is set apart. He's not like us. Thank, thank the Lord He's not like us. Amen? He's holy. But we're also reminded that, that He is in control of all things and circumstances. In heaven, in the future on earth, and ultimately He's in charge on earth even right now. And we're reminded that God is all-powerful, that He can do anything, and He can do everything, and He can do all things. We're reminded that this is the God that we know, and this is the God that we worship, and this is the God that we pray to, the God who is above and over and more powerful than all things. And I wonder sometimes if in my own life and in our lives as Christians, I wonder if we don't wrestle and struggle with the different issues that we face in life because we fail to acknowledge and recognize and pray the way and to who God actually is. Let's look at the second three requests, if we can, very briefly. The second three requests have to deal with our physical and spiritual needs as believers and followers of Christ. 
First of all, we, we, we recognize who God is that we, that we pray to. Secondly, the conditions that we find ourselves in. The fourth request is this, that our physical needs be met. Amen? That our physical needs be met. We serve a God who is able to meet all of our physical needs. We may ask the question, well, why this? Why that? Why this physical need met here when, when there's not enough money to pay the bills? Why this health need over here when there's, there's an there's a, there's a, a illness or a sickness that took somebody's life or there's a, there's, there's a dementia or an Alzheimer's that takes somebody's mind? There's, there's an there's a ailment and an injury that took somebody's ability to walk and another one that took somebody's ability to see. All these things are happening. And people are hungry and people are starving and people are, are, are hurting all over the place. But, but the request here is this, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. The prayer for bread is a, is a prayer for, for the physical needs that we have. We all need food and shelter and clothing. And this prayer is a prayer that says, Lord, we trust you, the almighty God set apart from anything in this world. We trust you, we pray to you to meet the needs that we have on this earth. And notice... Their daily needs. They're not just needs, but their daily needs. And so often in the, in the day and time in which we live, one of the great blessings is that we don't have to worry about our daily needs every single day. We don't have to worry about what we're going to eat tomorrow because we went to the grocery store last week. We're, we're put up for, for days. I, I call my grandmother sometimes when there's going to be a storm or ice storm, and I say, Grandma, are you okay? She says, Honey, I could, I could store up in here for about three weeks. She's ready. We live in a day and a time. That's a great blessing. But in the days of Jesus and in the days of, of so many people throughout history and most of the world today, it's a struggle day in and day out just to have food and shelter and clothing. And the prayer is, Lord, would you provide for us the physical needs that we have? The fifth request is that our spiritual life be our priority. It's not, it's not just enough to have a spiritual life, but it be the the priority, that it might be the prayer that, that, that everything about us might reflect our relationship with Christ. Notice how he says this. He says, Look, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we're reminded right here of our greatest need. Each, each and every one of us, our greatest need is a relationship to God through faith in Jesus Christ to overcome the sin in our life. And the Bible says that because of our sin, we're separated from God and under the judgment of God. And because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that we can be set free from our sin and the penalty of sin and have eternal life. That's what the gospel, that's what the message of Christ is all about. That we can have the forgiveness of sin by God. It's forgiveness that takes place once and for all when Jesus died on the cross. And it's a forgiveness that takes place ongoingly as we wrestle and struggle with temptation and with sin in our own life. But listen, just as our greatest need is salvation, the greatest demonstration of our salvation is forgiveness. God has forgiven me, therefore I'm to be forgiving of others. I want you to listen to the words of Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Our relationship with others is to be based on forgiveness. Not because we somehow become good people, because we don't, but because of the power of forgiveness extended to us by God, we're now to extend that power of forgiveness from us to others when they have offended us. The end of that verse says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
That's our standard. And so if we have truly experienced the forgiveness of God, recognizing the cross, that in the cross God punished His own Son in this terrible way on the cross, because on the cross God put the sins of the world on His innocent Son so that those of us who are guilty could go free and the requirements of God's justice and holiness could be met as this great exchange took place when Jesus died for our sins and in our place. That's why it's so important next week as the choir presents about the curtain being torn. And as I'm going to be sharing next week about the, not, not just the mission of Jesus, but about the cross and about the resurrection. And then the following Sunday, we Easter Sunday, what a great time to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we've truly been forgiven by God and understand forgiveness, then we will both receive it and we'll also be able to give it more freely. The last request that is made here, is that our direction be under God's guidance. That God would truly direct us in all of our steps. Where Jesus said, pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Keep us from those circumstances that will tempt us. Keep us, Lord, from those circumstances where we will be tempted to do those things that are evil, both because of the temptation outwardly, but also because of our sinful nature inwardly. Lead us away from those things, Lord, that we may not succumb. Back to the Bible ministry has outlined what they believe are the seven sins of our generation. Certainly there are more, but they've outlined the seven sins of our generation as, as they see them. The first is the sin of naturalism. And naturalism is the belief that there is no God, that everything is just has appeared naturally, that there, it just kind of came into existence. There's, there's no guiding force. There's no creator. There's no God who communicates with us. There's no God in whose image we're made. Everything is just natural. And that is a, a great temptation and a great evil that more and more people are latching onto as they turn away from God. The second sin they mention is the sin of lust. And in the article, they say, lust is now considered a virtue rather than a vice, and it is celebrated as the full expression of every bodily desire. And we look at, in our culture, at what's popular on television. You look at on the, on the social media pages that are out there. You look on what's on the Internet, what's on the movie screens, what's the popular songs that are out there. And again, lust seems to be something that is celebrated as a virtue rather than uh, uh, rather than attacked as a sin. The third sin that they mention is the sin of abortion. It says, since culture denies God as the creator, and since culture denies human beings as created in his image, life is now expendable. If there is no God and we're not created in his image, then certainly the culture is right. Life is expendable. Your life is no more valuable than mine, is no more valuable than the tree or the rock or anybody else. So, so therefore, abortion is something that certainly would play into that. One of the sins of our generation. A fourth one is this, envy and greed. Envy and greed. We've made life a matter of materialism and the relentless, relentless pursuit of everything our heart desires. We, cert, we, we constantly pursue those things to make us happy, those outward things that we can put on our plate, we can put in our bank account, we can park in our driveway, we can show off to our neighbors. All these things, the relentless pursuit of wealth is, is, is nothing more than envy and greed, according to back to the Bible. The fifth uh, sin of our time, they say, is pride. Having disobeyed God, there's nothing left but to take pride in ourselves. 
and we hear this phrase all over the place, believe in yourself, which sounds so innocuous, but it is the very uh, epitome of the belief that says, there is no God, so I'm all about me. The sixth sin of our time, according to Back to the Bible, is the sin of lying. And they, they point out the, the, the phrase, post-truth. If you've ever heard the phrase post-truth, raise your hand. Anybody? I had not heard of it either. And, uh, but evidently, the phrase post-truth is the uh, 2016 word of the year by the Oxford Dictionary. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Well, I feel better now. So uh, uh, the word of the year, post-truth, and here's the definition. Circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in, sa in shaping public opinion then appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, the facts are not important. How I feel is important. That's what it means to be post-truth. And evidently, that phrase, that mindset is catching on, and certainly that is one of the sins of our generation. The last mention here is the sin of anger. And what they say is this. When culture encounters those who will not bless their sin, they quickly uh, cry intolerant. Intolerant. You're being intolerant of me because you're not blessing what I do. You're being intolerant of me because I'm not, I'm not just, we're, not, we're, not, we're not just putting our blessing on immoral things according to what the Scripture says. We're not being tolerant when, uh, in a post-truth world when we try to cling and hold on to the truth of the Bible. Let's look real quickly at the conclusion of this prayer. The conclusion uh, is found in some translations have this phrase, some don't. The original manuscript, some have, some don't. Different translators do it different ways. But in the King James Version, at the end of this prayer, we see these words, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's the beginning of a prayer. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. It's an ending of the prayer with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's, it's a reminder to us of who God is. That who it is that we pray to. And it's a reminder of His desire to be in the midst of our circumstances. His kingdom literally coming and invading into our lives, our hearts, our families, our communities, our church, and our world. And it's a reminder that we can trust God for our physical needs. That we can trust God to lead us out of the temptations and the, and the, and the evils of this world. And that He, in conclusion, is the one that we pray to and the one who is able and the one who gave us life and the one who will receive that life again in death or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Now, I want to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. I want to learn to pray like Jesus prayed. I hope you do too. Let me ask you this morning, what, what would it take for you to pray like Jesus? Think for just a second. What would it mean for you to pray like Jesus? Would it mean to pray more, as in more often? Would it mean to offer more prayer, spend more time? Would it be to offer more targeted prayer, as in reading the pages of Scripture as the basis of your prayer? I know it simply starts with a desire. Like I've expressed to the Lord this week, Lord, help me. Help me to pray like Jesus. Help me to pray, Lord, like you want me to. Help me to stop bringing my agenda and throwing it on you and calling it a prayer. Help me to listen to what you want to say to me. Help me to trust you for who you are and what you promised to do. 
and help me to recognize you. The holy God of all creation who is in charge of everything and works all things according to your good and your perfect will. I want to pray like Jesus. Right there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, Jesus said, pray like this. Pray, pray like this. Don't just recite the words, but pray with this kind of a heart. I invite you right now. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? It's not going to be a long season of prayer. I wish we had 30 or 45 minutes. We could just pray on the tail end of this message. But I wonder this morning if it's your desire to pray like Jesus. Right there where you are. You just tell him. Lord, help me to pray like you. Help me to pray like you said in your word. Help me to understand and learn. Help me, Lord, to give you the priority of my time. Help me to give you the amount of time. Help me to recognize who you are. Help me to trust you. So, our Heavenly Father, this morning, if we talk about prayer, I can only speak for myself and admit to you and admit in front of these folks, I don't pray as I should. But I want to. But I want to pray. And I want to know you in a deeper level. And I want to experience you in every part of my life. I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done in my heart and through me to reach out to others. I want this congregation to be a church family of prayers. And I would ask that we would pray regularly, individually, and together. I would ask that revival would come to our lives and our families, our church family and our community, our nation and our world, because we pray. Our Father in heaven, holy and set apart is your name. May we long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done right here on this earth, starting in my heart and radiating out on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us the needs that we have. You created us as a people of need and then you provide those needs for us. Help us to pray to you in confidence that you'll meet them. Forgive us, O oh God, for those times when we are so unforgivable. But because of your great love for us and because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, you forgive. And in response to your forgiveness of us, may we be forgiving of others. Lord, lead us. Lead us away from the temptations and evils of this world. Lead us forward into your kingdom and your glory. For yours, O oh God, is the kingdom. Yours, O oh God, is the glory. And it's yours, O oh Lord, forever and ever. As all God's people said, amen.